you are listening to Single Sirs. My name is Arno Marturay, and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. For our inaugural season, we have some great guests lined up and you can expect to hear about such topics like social media for architects, organizational culture, criticism in media, and architects not practicing architecture, among many others. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Andy Thompson is the principal and founder of Thompson Architecture, Inc., a graduate of UBC's School of Architecture in 2003, Andy's 24 years of experience in Germany, the US and Canada in the field of green design and construction combined with his love of the outdoors informs the work he does today. When Andy isn't glued to the computer, he can be found windsurfing, cycling, or riding electric skateboards. Andy speaks English, German, and French. So thank you very much, Andy, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. If this weren't an Anglophone show, I would go full on in French, but uh, we, we have to respect our audience. So can you tell us who you are and what you do in three sentences or less? Uh, three sentences, three words. Uh, architect, uh, camping enthusiast, and maybe sustainability advisor. I guess I do a lot of that, so that's probably the best term for it. It's a good place to start. So uh, you and I connected when you released your plan to revisit Canadian modern classic homes from the CMHC pattern book. Right. Can you tell us more about this program? Uh, sure. So it's a program that started in 1947. And I don't know much about how or why it started. But when, when people started coming back from the Second World War, there was a huge boom. I mean, the baby boomer boom that uh, resulted in a lot of bungalows and small homes being built across Canada. So CMHC as a lender or, or a lending insurance company um, really wanted to see that they got good quality uh, product. Uh, for good value um, as a public interest mandate of the CMHC as well. So um, what they did is they held design competitions for architects to participate in and produce designs that met the needs of uh, Canadians at that time uh, with high quality design, affordable uh, in, a, in a kind of bungalow scale, anywhere from 600 square feet to 1,500 square feet. But most of them were in the 1,000 square foot range. And so what was the impact of that program on Canadian residential design? So if you look at an older neighborhood, like from 1950, 1960, 1970, anywhere in Canada, it's probably got something like 40 to 80% of those designs were plans that originated as CMHC plans. Uh, over the course of the program, they produced um, thousands of, of floor plans, um, which were widely uptaken by builders and adopted uh, and repurposed and kind of copied and implemented in different ways. And so um, the house that I'm in right now is one of those CMHC plans. 1957 number 321 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So were those freely available to anyone who wanted to use them? Yeah, anyone could uh, write to CMHC if they had a copy of the plan book. So these were published as like hardcover books and mm -hmm. you could pick them up at like, you know, you know, if they were grocery stores or where, but you could buy these books. Um, and once you saw a plan that you liked, you could send away uh, in a self-addressed stamped envelope to CMHC for $10 and they would send you the pattern book excerpt as well as the full set of construction documents. 
oh, wow. with engineering and everything. That's amazing for 10 bucks. $10. Never, never happened today. No. Um, so why were you interested in bringing those designs back to life? Well, I've been working for probably 30 years in the space of small house, tiny home, prefab uh, design. And anytime you get into something that granular, there's always a better way to do everything from where a cutting board goes to where you stash a wine bottle to where do you put muddy boots or a kitty litter box. So anything that really uh, dove into small space design in a really intelligent way, you can read that. It's almost like hieroglyphics as an architect, right? When you flip through these plans, you can go, oh, that's a really good consolidation of circulation space, or that's a really good kitchen layout to be adjacent to this dining room and still let you hide the mess or, or whatever it is. So flipping through, I found one of these books in an old uh, architect's basement where I used to work. And uh, I was like, this is amazing. Like CMHC made these really. And, and so thumbing through them, I just had to find out more. And that's when I reached out to the archivist at uh, CMHC and, and got the full kit, all, all the plans, all the books. So how do you plan or have adapted them for the 21st century? So that's a really good question because um, the way I see it, this was like a train that was happily chugging along from 1947 all the way into like 1978, 79. It's kind of a mystery when the last CMHC book was published. The last one I've seen is from 1977. So just after Expo in Montreal. Um, and then the 80s happened. And we kind of, it's almost like we underwent a collective delusion, this hallucination of excess, right? money and space and floor plans for houses became gigantic and all this time and energy went into the foyer and these like Beaux-Arts bilateral symmetry staircases in a suburban home like everything just kind of went completely off the rails so whatever common sense and ideas of budget and economy that prevailed before the 80s just kind of evaporated like we had the Miami, Miami Vice era of design right glass block as big as you can possibly make it because square feet are cheap, right? So we're not doing 1,000 square foot plans anymore. We're trying to do like five, eight, seven, 10,000. That was kind of the birth of, uh, you know, the McMansion. And um, I don't know, my, my train of thought kind of derailed at the same time as the housing in the 80s, but... No, that's that, that what happened that's to a, it. That's a great segue. I was going to ask you, how do you, or what do you attribute that change to if you, if you can at all, that from the 70s to the 80s? I think there was a general shift from housing as a commodity in terms of the way econo economists talk about it, or sorry, as a, as a something you use to a financial instrument. And as soon as housing became speculative and a, a place to park money and grow investments, um, the larger the thing was, the bigger returns you would get over time. So the financial torquing or warping of architect residential architecture really kind of started encouraging this trend of making the biggest possible thing with the most impressive like curb you know wow factor or appeal um so no longer were we just you know owning a house that cost basically double the cost of your car in your driveway that was the old metric is mm -hmm. a house would cost about two times what your car would or be equivalent to like three years of income or something like that it was mm -hmm. like almost like a functional kind of your own private hotel but it wasn't anything more than that and and as soon as we started seeing housing becoming this financial instrument, all the rules changed. So I, I think that's probably, I'm not an expert in the area, but I think that's actually what happened. And so going back to adapting those plans to the uh, 21st century, what are some of the challenges you faced? 
Well, first of all, the reason to go back to these plans or to look at these plans or re-examine them is because of where we are. When you look at a tripling and a quadrupling of the construction materials since the kind of U.S.-driven housing start boom that's happening in the past six months, um, mm-hmm. that's affected everyone from both the you know availability of professionals to surveyors to builders to subtrades, uh, you know the cost of lumber going up tenfold and then coming down twenty percent. Like there's a kind of chaos that's in the. Uh, supply chain right now, and especially with respect to construction materials, because while tourism and other major sectors of the economy have not recovered, construction is like blasting ahead. And mm-hmm. that's happening at the same time as the affordability crisis. Uh, so when you can't find a house you can afford and materials and costs of construction are skyrocketing, and we're still stuck with this model of excess, like building the j- biggest thing you can possibly build, um, that, that just, you know opening up these books from 1947 makes a ton of sense because they're smaller, they're affordable, they're sensible, they're what you need, right? Mm -hmm. Um, With any given house with 10 bedrooms, I mean, how many bedrooms can you sleep in at one time? So Mm -hmm. all the other stuff is just like, I don't know how we ever accepted that as normal or something to be desired uh, rather than just insanity, which is what I see it as as a designer. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so, are there any particular challenges to building those those patterns and or those models in the twenty first century with regards to building codes and stuff like that? Yeah, for sure. There's a bunch. I mean, just from a design theory point of view, the spaces are highly gendered. So, if you look at uh, the the plans, often you'll see a girl's bedroom and a boy's bedroom, and all of the functions of running the household are devoted to the the female uh, matriarch of the house, where the clothesline is a quick access through a back door from the kitchen to stoking the coal in the basement to a staircase in the kitchen to the kinds and sizes of appliances that were there at the time. So obviously, if you're going to reboot those plans from 1947 through 1970, um, you're going to be looking at them with an eye towards the modern kitchen, current appliances, shared responsibilities and tasks, um, bedrooms that make sense for all kinds of family arrangements or you know, people that are co-purchasing a house together that don't have a traditional nuclear family. So um, all of those things kind of will filter in and then updating them to the current building code is kind of my interest as well. I see. Um, do you have any of those projects going on right now? There's a bunch um, and they all kind of, uh, we get a lot of inquiries that, that people are interested in this stuff and then they kind of go off on another track and then they end up getting into custom design. So we see that happen a lot with our prefab or the steel buildings that we do or there's all these kind of flavors of projects that we do um, from tiny homes to like these airplane hangar-like buildings uh, like Quonsets. And often someone will start with that. That's the thing that, that roped them in or interested them. But then they end up going down a very different path. Once we start to kind of suss out what their actual needs are and what their actual budget is, you know, mm-hmm. someone might come to me with a 4,000 square foot home and then we tell them, well, the starting cost for that is 4,000 bucks. They go, ah, I'm not interested in talking to you anymore. Bye. Mm-hmm. Um, but we say, but there's buildings we can build for 150 or 200 bucks a square foot. Do you want to see what they look like? Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's budget driven or if it's space driven or if it's style driven or if it's prefab, usually people are attracted to something, whether it's a tiny home or super contemporary or budget or whatever it is. There's something that that they want to find out more about. And then CMHC plans are a great way to start that conversation, but they don't necessarily result in us building those homes. So it sounds like it's been a good marketing um, material for you to get people in the, through the door and then deliver on what they, they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't meant to be like a kind of a lost leader. We really started... Uh, redesigning these classic floor plans um, with an interest in the architecture. 
to yeah. see what the buildings would look like in, in three dimensions yeah. and then to try and bring them up to code um, because they're really good plans. I mean, a lot of them are just like tight, simple, cute, compact, um, and energy efficient, right? From the building form, the building massing. So um, we got a lot of people coming to us that, that explore uh, schematic design over several iterations. Like, I don't know, like five or six different, totally different floor plans. And then they wonder what they spent 10, 15, $20,000 on in terms of our fee. And so rather than having that conversation about investigating what our invoices consist of, we wanted to offer like hundreds of floor plans that people could thumb through and try and discover what it is that they wanted from a, from a plan or a layout. Um, and so the CMHC guides or pattern books were really a way for us to start that dialogue and say, here's a bunch of plans. What do you think? But what we're discovering is that a lot of homeowners or prospective clients don't have the level of education to distinguish between one floor plan or another. Like they'll just see a dated set of plans and go, well, that's, I don't want something old like that. <laughs> I want something current. Takes years of practice to properly read plans, right? So that's also exactly. a, a challenge. Um, so are you building any of these at all? We, we have a few that are under design and that is okay. the, has been the starting point. Um, but I think what is, uh, what is going to be the closest cousin to this whole program is the detached accessory dwelling unit space. Mm -hmm. So in municipalities all across Ontario and all over North America, you're starting to see the legal application of detached accessory dwelling units on, a, on any residential zone property. That's under Bill 108, the More Homes, More Choices. And before that, the Wind government passed a similar um, law under the Planning Act that said you must allow these second suites. So most municipalities have some form of draft bylaw that lets you build these things. So here, here's an example on our street. There's uh, a lot of corner lots that are almost like double width lots. And they would perfectly accommodate one of these detached accessory dwelling units. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you build one of them on the property, it'll look like just another one of the bungalows on the street. Mm -hmm. So there's tons of infill opportunities and backyard suite opportunities to use these designs for. Um, and we've got a, another program or a set of kind of a set of prefab designs that, that work with that as well. So if just it's to, a lot where the hmm? yeah. just to clarify, you're in Barrie, right? That's right, we're in Barrie, yeah. Ontario. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't have the same kind of I don't want to paint Toronto with one brush, but there's a fair bit of nimbyism in Toronto in the established neighborhoods. And so it just makes it really difficult to do the kind of stuff that's super easy to do in Barrie. Yeah. You don't have as much nimbyism in Barrie? Uh, it's there for sure, as with anywhere. But the, the staff and the city is anticipating like a huge amount of growth in the next 10 years. Like the, the size that we are multiplied by another third. So that's adding a ton of residents, like 50,000 residents, mm -hmm. plus a whole bunch of new housing units. So we've got to find a way to sens sensibly do that. And the established neighborhoods are a prime target for that kind of development. That's interesting to hear that it's planning to grow beyond what it's already grown to. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And you'll see that in a lot of plans. They have to, mm -hmm. the planning departments have to anticipate that kind of growth. Uh, so if you were to summarize what you've learned or gotten out of this exercise so far, what would that be? Well, you, you can have a million perfect plans for a generic site, but you're always going to have to tailor that when you get a new client or when you get another site. There's no one-size-fits-all approach. And um, if you find an owner that likes one house, it may not work for their lot, or the view might be in the wrong direction, or the solar access might be the wrong way. or, or you know. So we, we encounter this kind of stuff all the time where it's like, well, you might like that plan, but it doesn't actually work that well with the site and the neighborhood and the context and the height and the zoning and the code and whatever. So it's been good to have a conversation with a bunch of plans that you can just flip through. And eventually we'd like to, I mean, there's some copyright issues with the existing material, but we'd love to just kind of 
redo the whole series of books. I mean, if I could apply for a CMHC grant to update everything so the plans look current, um, that would be the perfect scenario. Well, I hope uh, the CMHC is listening. <laughs> Let's hope so. Um, so you've alluded uh, when you introduced yourself early on this conversation to uh, your love of camping and your interest in sustainability. Right. Uh, what do you mean when, um, when you say that architecture should be more like camping? Well, if you think about um, any experience going camping, you, you're struck with a number of memories. One, fresh air two incredible vistas that are unrestricted by windows or living indoors. Um, the feeling and the smell of the earth um, and the relationship that you have with water and waste and food. Um, all of those things are acute because you don't have infrastructure bringing fresh water to you through a pipe, right? You've got to go get it or you've got to filter it or you've got to be engaged with those things. Or if you've got to do a number two somewhere, you've got to go find a thunderbox and you have an immediate uh, experience response with how waste becomes the earth again. Mm -hmm. So the relationship that you have with the natural world is uninterrupted or less interrupted through a tent um, and, and living in a camp-like environment than it is with a building where you're really cut off and kind of divorced from those experiences. So imagine if you just took any house on any residential street and kind of ripped it out of the earth, you're going to see water lines spurting and toilets dumping their stuff and gas lines bursting and electrical lines sparking. There's all this stuff that we carry that we don't think about very much in terms of how we're connected to a, a pretty linear and actually pretty destructive infrastructure in terms of climate change uh, from the natural gas infrastructure, the electrical infrastructure. So put in a camping environment, you don't have any of that. And I think if architecture were more like camping and you had to think about a building's direct relationship to the earth and the impacts that it has, you really start to think differently about Does the whole building need to be heated or just the bedroom right now? And if the whole building wasn't heated, how do you keep the walls from rotting? And and on and on, right? From the toilet to the heating system to cooking and everything else. So how does that affect uh, your own practice and the way you design buildings? It plays out in a lot of different ways. Um, but I would say that probably the first and foremost is ephemeralization or reducing the materials that you use in a building. So if you think about a given house, um, architects are great at doing all kinds of expressive, dramatic, formal things and huge cantilevers and overhangs and push-pull moves where you kind of take a bite out of a, a facade or whatever, but it doesn't always result in a, in a kind of an optimized area to volume ratio. Um, you can end up expanding and then multiplying a lot of the surface area of a building by, by making those dramatic architectural moves, mm -hmm. which isn't to say everything should just be a sphere, but we should be thinking about these things as we design. So a lot of our buildings are really reduced or simplified geometry. So we do a series of buildings that are based on quonsets. So they're like a tube cut in half, parked on the earth, and that reduces the surface area of the building. But because you're, you have this kind of one-liner structural, big clear spend space, you can make them really big, right? Like you can have 40 feet wide with a 20-foot ceiling, and then the interior is completely up to you. So we think of it like a tent, like a really big tent that's doing the job of air tightness and uh, insulation, like we insulate on the outside of them. So we do all these things, but we, by having only three layers of stuff in the walls, like we have a primary structural steel skin, and then we have insulation, and we have another one to shed rain away from the insulation. Mm -hmm. There's three layers. And in a given building assembly, you've got like 10 to 15 layers of stuff. And every layer of construction material comes with a layer of trades labor. So your labor inputs are multiple, uh, you know, they're related to the number of things you put in a building. So with our buildings, we try to make them like a tent. How can a building be more like a tent and get down to one thing that's performing like a watershedding function, an environmental filter, insulation and structure all in one thing? Yeah. So, so those two steel layers are also self-supporting, right? Uh, the, the primary steel 
structure is the only self-supporting thing. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting when you start bolting like lateral supports to that and a second skin, you're building almost like a steel truss. So we started with these engineering them just based on the engineering of the -the off-the-shelf Quonset components. Mm -hmm. But when you put it all together, you're building like a space frame, right? Because there are a bunch of triangles that are connected by a lateral thing and then another layer outside. So if we actually took some aircraft modeling, like fuselage modeling tools, we could probably minimize the gauge of the materials substantially because we don't need all this steel. It's the everything's working together. Yeah, that's very interesting. And so that leads us to uh, sustainable architecture. And where did your interest in that uh, begin? Uh, well, it, it really goes back to camping. I mean, uh, I think about sustainability and architecture on on this kind of spectrum of like totally sustainable, like we could live this way for 10,000 years and mm-hmm. still survive as a species to completely unsustainable, right? On the far end of the spectrum. And I think the way we're currently practicing multi-story urban architecture is probably, no matter how green it is or platinum certified or anything, you're probably pretty far on the unsustainable end of the spectrum. Um, I just don't think we can live with the population growth that we have, with the resource constrictions that we have in terms of like sand, like we're running out of sand international globally for concrete, mm-hmm. uh, glass, aluminum. There's a, there's a finite amount of stuff on this planet to build buildings from. And as we start hitting the wall, as populations doubling, and our consumptive demands or requirements for the dwelling size increases. Like if if you look at a typical dwelling in Hong Kong, it's 35 square meters, whereas Canada is like 350 square meters. So as the world is catching up to the size of buildings and space that we occupy, with the doubling of the real estate footprint internationally in the next 30 years, um, that's going to put a serious uh, constraint on materials. Mm-hmm. So where am I going with this? Uh, how do we do? How do we truly do sustainable buildings? It's a huge question, but I think it's easy to say what's sustainable. You know, mm-hmm. indigenous architecture is sustainable because it hummed along just fine for 50,000 years. That said, European architecture hummed along fine for 50,000 years. Well, not 50, but maybe five. A few thousand years, yeah. A few thousand years, no problem. But, you know, clearly we can't burn coal in uninsulated structures any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got to make some hard choices pretty quickly. And we've also got to kind of include the, you know, what is what are the impacts of the buildings we're building, not just on the single building, but on the infrastructure requirements for that building as well. Yeah. So it, if we circle back to the CMHC pattern or the plans that you're you've been working on, uh, you've you've already talked about their sustainability in the sense that they're smaller and they're they're more uh, less energy, uh, they consume less energy. Are there any other sustainable features that uh, have you've identified as a result of working with those designs? Yeah, well, that's the biggest one. I mean, if you think about factor 10 design, um, if, you, if you build out the, the earth the way that we have been and continue to expand cities with the conventional architecture that we've done, um, you're going to need 10 additional planets, right? So mm-hmm. to, for all the resources. So the inverse of that is how do you design and build with one-tenth of the resources? So making smaller buildings is kind of like a natural or it's a, mm-hmm. it's a no-brainer. It's also afford, more affordable. Um, but you also have less uh, requirements for heating and lighting those spaces. So the material impacts, the, the operational uh, and the carbon impacts of a smaller building all go hand in hand. Then reducing the amount of materials that go into the building. It's like how can you have the most structurally efficient beam? Uh, and is that cantilever really helping you or is it using more, more material to do that? 
extra span, right? What if you picked up that cantilever with a column? How much less material could you take out of a beam if you did that? So asking those kinds of questions about material efficiency at the same time as making something smaller and operationally more efficient through insulation and triple glazing and all the rest of it, those things, I think, all go together. And of course, our appetite or expectations about the size of a quote-unquote normal house, they may be normal for us, but they may be completely abnormal for someone from Vietnam or mm -hmm. Ethiopia, for that matter. Yeah, that's that begs a very interesting question because you said earlier you don't think that living in dense cities is necessarily very sustainable. Um, but what about the what do you make of the ability to put a lot of people in tight spaces and reduce the amount of travel that's being done, you know, as opposed to commuting from the suburbs into the city? Uh, you can walk to work and things like that, and you can live in an apartment building with 50 other families, and there's a lot of efficiencies to be made there. What's your take on that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's easy to go into this kind of duality trap you know, in the debate about cities versus urban or rural living um, and, and what's, sustain what's more sustainable than the other. Um, I think however we're living, if we're in a city, then we need to find ways to make the city more efficient. If we're in the country, we need to find ways to make this, the country living more efficient. It doesn't matter where you are or what the predicament is. I don't think it's an either or. What we're seeing is a huge move to cities. And yeah. many urbanists will argue the city is inherently more efficient than the country. But if you're completely off grid and you know, you've got a one acre farm that's producing permaculture produce for you and your neighbors and you're kind of in a collective way of living, I mean, can you say that that's not sustainable because it's got a footprint on the land? I, I'm not sure, but I wouldn't want to get stuck saying one is better than the other. I think we need to look at everything and kind of tune up everything, make everything efficient at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so if you had a, a magic wand and you could, uh, you could have your way, what would you change first in terms of sustainability? Oh, boy. Um, I, would, I would ask aliens for guidance. <laughs> I, would, I would have them come down to the earth and say, look, we've been around for 50 million years. This is what you got to be doing. Like, here's the energy source. Here's the type of dwelling. And stop squabbling and fighting. I mean, let's, let's get past tribalism in general language language wise or otherwise mm -hmm. I, waving a magic wand i don't i don't have that power <laughs> um i i don't even fantasize about it i think we're stuck with all the crazy people we are stuck with and we got to find a way to work with them the best we can towards a some kind of sustainable architecture even asking what is that what does that look like mm -hmm. and speaking of crazy people who uh what thinker had the most uh impact on you well there's a bunch of them i think uh Frank Lloyd Wright and Buckminster Fuller, and they were kind of contemporaries. Um, like, you know, there's, I'm sure you could find a photo somewhere of Einstein and, and Frank Lloyd Wright and Buckminster Fuller and a few of my other favorite thinkers. But, um, you know, just a little bit beyond the, the edge of normal, right? Exploring ideas that were kind of transcended time in both directions, you know, living in the future and looking at the past. Uh, Fuller, because he was really like a Platonist uh, at heart, uh, but he's also a futurist. So, Connecting that geometry and questions about the universe with a practical architecture that can span huge distances and support neighborhood living underneath a big dome. I mean, that's kind of rad. I've never seen it done. Why, why, aren't, we, why aren't we doing neighborhoods under domes? Yeah. Do you think his, uh, his visionary thinking has been forgotten or has it influenced the culture in more subtle ways? I think you're absolutely right. It's a definitely influenced culture in subtle ways. And I think you could probably say the same for a lot of great thinkers, that we don't recognize their, their fingerprints on our technology. I mean, even if a car is named Tesla, we don't really see 
this was because of the genius of a, of a person that imagined the induction drives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and are we seeing that in housing? Not so much. I mean, I think housing is, has always been this bespoke, laborious, uh, complicated process that's got so much red tape that I don't think we've ever seen architecture that is designed as efficiently as an airplane, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really what Fuller had had imagined, that what if we had the kind of precision and prefabricated technology that you see in aircraft applied to the housing market? You could have houses that cost a tiny fraction of, they do, of what they do using way less material without all the red tape. And um, that's not the world we live in. Yeah, and many have tried since him. The latest victim of that trend is Katera. I don't know if you heard about it, this company that wanted to revolutionize uh, how housing was built and they vertically integrated and they just went bankrupt. I've heard a little bit about it, but I mean, that, that, that kind of story plays out at a lot of different scales, you know. Yeah, so it seems that many have tried and none have succeeded so far. So it's a very interesting question. Why is it that something everyone seemed to think is a good idea hasn't taken off in the last 70, 80 or 100 years that it's been proposed? That's really the, the real question. There's, I guess, I don't know if it's axiomatic, it's probably idiomatic. The idea of a house, as understood by any member of any distinct culture, is going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. And if what you're proposing doesn't fit that model or that idea, you're less likely to have success than if it aligns with that idea. Mm -hmm. So anytime you propose something totally different, even if it's better, it's probably not going to happen because there's just so much kind of... um, cognitive resistance to those ideas. And I think if you had a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk that said, forget it, everybody's got the wrong idea. I'm just going to do this thing. I'm going to build a neighborhood under a dome and see who wants to buy a unit in it. Somebody's just got to do that, right? Um, and nobody's doing that. They, The people with money uh, are, are have a machine of development that works and the market understands what the units look like, and they just keep producing these things like a cookie cutter, whether it's uh, podium and tower condominiums or whether it's townhouses or single-family residences. There doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite for innovation in the construction space. And I think that has a lot to do with what banks will finance, the vision of the people with the money, uh, and the ideas that people have that are kind of like eBay fix. Yeah, and that's interesting because you'd think with all the people with the money and meaning the most power, you'd have at least a few try things differently, but you don't see many of those. So that's an interesting puzzle. Well, if you look at the the work that's being done for like uh, villages on Mars or mm-hmm. on the moon, like there's people that are saying, let's 3D print stuff out of regolith, right? Let's 3D print stuff out of Martian dust. Let's protect from radiation. So if we took that same kind of lens, like how are we going to build in a resource constrained world on the earth? Like just taking those kind of, like my early designs were like lunar landers, right? But for the earth. Mm-hmm. So they were little things on pods with legs and they captured water and they had a compost toilet and all that. But if you just took that lens and said, let's do that here, what would mm-hmm. it look like if you built on Hawaii? Same way as if you were an alien civilization that, that's going to build something here with the highest level of technology. What would mm-hmm. that look like? Yeah, that would make a very interesting uh, architectural school studio for sure. Absolutely. Imagine you're an alien and building on the earth. What's the smartest thing you would do? Yeah, that's a very interesting puzzle. Um, so the, the last question I have for you is, uh, if you were to uh, to exit this world tomorrow, uh, what would you want others to know about you or from what you've learned? That's a hard question to answer, but I, I think I would say, look at the look at the perennial history of 
philosophy. Um, look at Plato, read Plato or Plotinus or, uh, you know, Socrates. Look at what they were saying about buildings. Look at all the Greek scholars. They're all talking about passive solar, material and energy efficiency, the elegance of nature and geometry. Um, they've been talking about biophilic design for five, 10,000 years, right? And if you look mm -hmm. at indigenous culture, the same kind of thing, but told in different means and different ways. Um, there's, a, there's a beauty and an intelligence in a yurt in that a yurt is both a representation of the cosmos with the oculus at the top and the fire and the relationship between the elements and the, the skins that are on the yurt are made from goat hair that then become carpets that then get trampled into the earth again. And it's completely cyclical. So we talk about a circular economy, but there's, you know, artifacts and current, you know, examples that are practiced in indigenous culture that are circular economies in motion, mm -hmm. but we're talking about it as if it's a new thing. So I guess um, I would just say, look up, look down, look at the stars, look at the earth and find how to be and how to make something that makes sense that connects those, those, those things above and below. Very interesting. Well, uh, that concludes the interview. I want to thank you very much for your time. It's been very uh, enlightening and hopefully we can have more of those in the future. Perfect. Thank you very much for hosting. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.